Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast, where I read the journal so you don't have to. This is episode 47 for the month of January 2021. Yep, we made it to 21. As always, if you have articles you want me to read, send them to info at gipearls.com and follow me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. All right, let's go to those journals. It is time for a guideline. Well, really more of a recommendation. This one is endoscopic recognition and management strategies for malignant colorectal polyps. I take a few issues with the recommendations, and if you haven't heard my multiple rants on this topic on Twitter, you should go find those tweets. Let's go over the recommendations. Recommendation 1A, both pedunculated and non-pedunculated polyps with the following features considered to have deep submucosal invasion, NICE 3 and KUDO 5, meaning brown or black polyps on NBI, with disrupted vessels, anamorphous appearance, and irregular anamorphous pit patterns. So these are the polyps you should think about deep submucosal invasion. Now the strength of recommendation is strong with high quality evidence. This is very misleading since neither KUDO nor NICE classifications have ever been tested in a good study in terms of reproducibility. But just so you know, whether it's CUDA or whatever, polyps with amorphous or missing vessels and disrupted and regular pit patterns may be malignant, but there's no magic in calling it some Roman numeral and deciding based on that instead. Recommendation 1B, non-pedunculated lesions with these features should be biopsied, tattooed, and referred for surgery. Low quality evidence. And this is a strange one, but hey, no good evidence. And many malignant tumors are resected endoscopically these days, so it's all good news. Recommendation 2A, for laterally spreading tumors with non-granular morphology or a granular dominant nodule, risk of submucosal invasion again is high. So recommendation 2B, remove these endoscopically and block instead of piecemeal, meaning probably ESD is probably better than EMR. Recommendation 3, try to remove all polyps with invasive cancer features in one piece and try to preserve orientation if you can. Recommendation 4A, non-pedunculated polyps should be considered high risk if they have poor differentiation, lymphovascular invasion, submucosal invasion depth over one millimeter, and tumor involvement at the margin. No surprises here. Recommendation 4B, pedunculated malignant polyps could be high risk if they also have poor differentiation lymphovascular invasion, and tumor is within one millimeter of resection margin. So basically, no matter what the polyp looks like, if you have invasive features or low margins, consider this polyp to be high risk. Recommendation 5 has to do with pathology reporting standards, so I'm not sure how this task force is going to enforce it, but nonetheless, we're going to skip that. Recommendation 6, we should all talk, GI docs, surgeons, pathologists, oncologists, and of course, the patient. This is probably the best recommendation of all of these. Communication is very important when it comes to big polyps, whether you leave them in place or remove them endoscopically. Now comes the rant. One, remember this is all for malignant polyps. If you or your fellow endoscopists are using this for polyps that you have completely removed because you thought they were benign, but you still took the time to classify them based on Paris, Kudo, NICE, or whatever, really, you've wasted your time. All these classification systems are designed for classification of malignant polyps. Two, this guideline smells too much of politics and doesn't really appear to be a groundbreaking work of synthesis of data. Yes, there you go, I've said it. 
And the reason I think that is that if you have a polyp that you think is malignant, you're just going to say, I think this polyp is malignant and I don't think I can remove it instead of using CUDA or NICE or etc. And I think it'd be pretty clear to whoever you refer this case to why you refer the case. It'd be nice if we had a good classification system that's easy to use and very reproducible, but we don't have it. And the idea of forcing everyone to use these systems is more to serve somebody's research agenda rather than trying to standardize something, because clearly the standards are lacking. I guess the saving grace of this document that these are recommendations and not guidelines. Another saving grace is that the authors tried to teach you. What do they teach? Well, one thing that they teach you is to look out for features of invasive or malignant tumors. Another part, and this is why I think they throw classification system in, if you are not an expert at removing large polyps, don't start removing them willy-nilly. You probably need to learn how to do this before you start removing them. And going back to Paris, Kudo, and Nice, and the rest of the wicked classification gang, there are two mortal sins in the Church of GI Pearls. One, again, don't use these classification systems for small polyps if you are removing them in one swoop. And two, use them for large polyps if you like, but keep the description of why you are putting down, say, Kudo 4 or 5 down. Is the whole polyp just Kudo 4? Is there a certain portion of it? Basically, if you're not removing the polyp and expect someone else to pick up after you, describe it as well as you can. This helps your colleagues and ultimately the patient because chances are as good as you think you are at using Paris Kudo. There's very high chance that you're wrong. Good evidence for this, even amongst the experts, meaning no good inter-observer reproducibility. And I'll post a link in the notes to the only good study that ever looked at this. Education is not the answer. Instead, the answer is probably coming up with a better classification system that's easier to use if you're really married to the idea of classification systems. That is all. Lower GI bleeds is probably the most common reason GI docs are called for in patient consults. Now that we have many studies showing that timing of endoscopy is not super crucial, meaning that you don't need to rush in the middle of the night to try to fix a lower GI bleed, the next very common question was, is there a weekend effect when it comes to lower GI bleeds, is there a difference in outcomes for patients who are cared for or admitted during the week versus over the weekend, where traditionally the staffing and resources are limited? This study published in GIE by Brian Lee and Daniel Stein from Beth Israel Deaconess basically argues that there is no big difference. They looked at over 100,000 admissions for lower GI bleeds through the National Inpatient Sample Database comparing weekends versus weekdays and found there is no difference in mortality rates of colonoscopies, rates of calling interventional radiology, or even mean days to colonoscopy. What about the length of stay? No difference there either. Weekday admissions did have more colonoscopies within the first day. My experience is that weekend times from admission to when they call you tends to be a little longer, but I do not shy away from doing colonoscopies on the weekend, even if I have to call staff in. Trying to keep the patient's length of stay shorter and not punting those procedures to Monday is probably a good idea anyway. I'm not surprised there's no difference according to this study. As I've mentioned, since early endoscopy doesn't make much of a difference, we wouldn't expect much of a difference here either. National inpatient dataset isn't without problems, but this seems to be a robust result, backing up other evidence that's out there. Well, at least it's good to know that there's no weekend effect for lower GI bleeds. I'm sure this is not true for certain institutions. Hepatic encephalopathy is something that can land a patient in deep trouble, and there's little that we can offer in terms of help to some of these patients other than lactulose and rifaximin, which most of the time work well, but there are limits to those things. 
Can we do better? Well, we've been trying. This next study is a randomized trial of ornithine phenylacetate for the treatment of overt hepaticocephalopathy published in CGH. There are several reasons why I mentioned this trial, as you will learn shortly. Let's look at the data first. 231 patients with cirrhosis and hepatic encephalopathy were randomly assigned to groups that received placebo or OP, ornithine phenylacetate. It was a double-blind study done on hospitalized patients. And by the way, ornithine phenylacetate is an ammonia scavenger, for those of you who don't know this, like me. Results are that there was no difference in improvement of encephalopathy between the OP group and placebo. So here we have a study of a drug that's supposed to lower ammonia, which is supposed to help with hepatic encephalopathy, but apparently under the best settings, meaning double-blind, randomized trial, we don't see a difference. How can we explain that? In these cases, I have no choice but to call Elliot Tapper, but this time I don't have to call him since he let his opinion known to the world if you read the editorial that accompanied this very article. And again, Elliot Tapper's editorials are always worth a read, especially in drug development field when it comes to novel treatments for hepatic encephalopathy. Here are some important points from the editorial. This is the largest study of hepatic encephalopathy in a decade. This study is done on top of lactulose and rifaximin, not versus lactulose or rifaximin. This is a negative study, as I mentioned this to you before. There was also no change in ICU utilization either, and no shortened length of stay, which is very important. Dr. Tapper then describes why chasing ammonia may not be a good idea. And here are some of his points. Ammonia levels are labile. No one agrees what abnormal level of ammonia is. And most importantly, levels don't correlate with how severe encephalopathy is. Another point from this editorial is that though the study is negative, this is a positive thing to have happened. It clarifies our approach, and we should probably refocus future studies away from ammonia. He concludes editorial with a clever line. The arc of ammonia history in the management of overt HE though long, has bent towards irrelevance, end quote. For fellows and liver folk, if you want good references as to why ammonia is irrelevant, you can find them all documented in Dr. Tapper's editorial. Thanks, Elliot, for this editorial. I've learned a lot. I've been sparing my listeners all the COVID-19 studies. I really tried not to cover any, mostly because they were very bad. And none of them really asked any good, at least to me, or interesting questions. Here's one that broke the mold, maybe. This was published in Gastroenterology. Title is, Are Gastrointestinal Symptoms Specific for Coronavirus 2019 Infection? A Prospective Case Control Study from the United States. Many GI docs out there get questions about COVID. I, and I think some of the COVID-19 related studies are actually inspired by this thing called GI COVID, where you have gastrointestinal symptoms and you have COVID-documented infection. I always wonder how specific these symptoms were. I mean, folks with the flu or even a cold sometimes have diarrhea, but rarely do patients present with diarrhea and diarrhea gets blamed on a cold or a flu. This was a prospective study of patients coming into Mercy Medical Center in March and April of 2020, and symptoms were reported, and then COVID test was done. And here is where it gets interesting. If your COVID test was positive, GI symptoms were more common, 75% versus 53%. And patients with COVID-19 symptoms were more likely to have anorexia and diarrhea. But diarrhea and anorexia were not specific for COVID. It only mattered if you had diarrhea and anorexia, if and only if you also had fever, 
loss of smell and taste. So here's the conclusion. GI symptoms were also prevalent in COVID negative patients and not associated with increased likelihood of testing positive for COVID-19. In this prospective study, GI symptoms did not measure up to be markers for more severe illness either. So what I'm saying here is that GI COVID, where patients only have GI symptoms of COVID, are probably very rare and maybe not even related to the fact that patient has COVID. GI COVID is probably not a thing. I think these days surgeons have less and less things to do with new imaging studies, no more X-Lab. The only thing that's left for them to do are cholecystectomies, hernia repairs, and appendectomies, and of course trauma. Oh, wait, never mind about appendectomies too. This next study from New England Journal, November issue, is a randomized trial that compared antibiotics with appendectomy for appendicitis. They looked at over 1,500 patients, non-blinded by the way, and treated them with IV antibiotics or surgery. For obvious reasons, patients were excluded for septic shock, peritonitis, perforation, abscess, or evidence of cancer on imaging. So this is more your run-of-the-mill appendicitis rather than something funky. Patients in the antibiotics arm were administered antibiotics IV for 24 hours, so only half were hospitalized, at least for some time. And conclusion was that antibiotics were not inferior to appendectomy. But if you got antibiotics, there was also a 30% chance that you would need appendectomy within 90 days. And this was more common if you had an appendicolith, by the way. Also, there seemed to be some complications in the antibiotic group, like placement of drains, again, more common with appendicolists. So if you want better than 7 out of 10 chance of avoiding surgery, antibiotics probably worth a try, especially if there's nothing funny going on on imaging and things look like a simple appendicitis if there is such a thing. I don't know, if your appendix betrays you once, there's a chance it probably will betray you again. And in this study, there's a 30% chance that it will definitely betray you. I don't know, maybe nobody wants surgery, but sometimes I think it's necessary. And studies like this keep limiting the scope of routine surgery. A common issue seen by gastroenterologists is a normal colonoscopy after a positive fit test. There were many arguments in the past floating around whether someone needs to do an upper endoscopy to look for cancer elsewhere, and the answer to that is probably don't look elsewhere. And this is endorsed in the latest guidelines, by the way. The question is, are people who have a positive fit test at increased risk for future colon cancer? And this is the question raised in the next paper I'm reviewing, published in Gut, and it comes out of Taiwan. Here they looked at thousands of patients who had negative diagnostic colonoscopy after a positive fit test. And basically what the authors conclude is that if you have a negative colonoscopy after a FIT test, they recommend that you actually resume the FIT program. I think I've got a few different interpretations, so let me tell you a little more about the data. So again, negative colonoscopy after a positive FIT test. Then in the whole cohort of thousands of patients, what you see in the vast majority of patients, meaning incidence of colon cancer, is highest in the first two, three years after a negative colonoscopy. And then there's a rapid trail-off over the next 8 to 10 years. What this tells me is that it's very likely that something was missed on the initial colonoscopy, rather than a new cancer has grown, especially in light of a positive fit test. And this would mean, of course, that adenoma detection rate would matter. And what did the study show in regard to adenoma detection? Overall, ADR was 45%, which is great, but obviously there were variations. So did these variations play a role? Well, maybe. ADR did matter. And there was a correlation with a low ADR and findings of colon cancer later. But when adjusted for fit result, 
it went away. I'm not sure it is reasonable to adjust for fit result here, since the uptick in colon cancer was very early in initial negative colonoscopy, but there it is. As far as fit testing is concerned, the test parameters, meaning the sensitivity and specificity of this test, is far from 100%, and some reported to be around 80 and 97%. And the prevalence of colon cancer in 50-year-olds is about 80 out of 100,000. So there still be a lot of false positive tests. And my conclusion after reading this paper here is that this may foreshadow the good evidence that colonoscopies will probably work for screening just as well, if not better than FIT testing. And clinically speaking, if you have a negative colonoscopy after a positive FIT test, the only way someone will have colon cancer in the next three years is if you've missed something, which clearly happens. We all know it. And your ADR will be a very useful measure of quality. But remember, this is a negative colonoscopy. So what would matter here more is probably withdrawal time and how careful you're looking. My general recommendation for new trainees is that six minutes withdrawal time limit is great. But if you have a patient with a positive fit test, you may want to extend that a little bit. I set my clock to around nine minutes withdrawal for such procedures with positive fit test, especially if I don't find anything. What do folks out there do for a positive fit test and negative colonoscopy? Do you think we should put these patients back on a fit program or let them go for 10 years? Please send me an email or start a Twitter thread. I'm very curious about what you guys are doing out there. Iron deficiency is common and lots of patients get better with some iron supplement. Many docs recommend taking vitamin C with your iron to help with absorption. For the boards, iron is absorbed in the duodenum and proximal jejunum. And supposedly, vitamin C helps to keep iron in ferrous state instead of the ferric state. Like many things in medicine, we do this because we believe in the mechanism. But of course, doing randomized trials is still useful, as we learn now. This study published in JAMA Open, done in Shanghai, China, randomized iron deficiency patients to taking iron with or without vitamin C. About 200 patients in each group. In the end, there was no difference in hemoglobin increase between the two groups whether you take the vitamin C or not. This was an open-label, single-center RCT, but it is a first randomized trial looking at vitamin C. What's interesting is that in this trial, iron was given three times daily for three months. Maybe they should have tried giving it every other day, as another study, and I will link this in the show notes, shows that it's probably better to take it every other day rather than daily. I must say that there was an increase in hemoglobin that was higher with vitamin C, which is not statistically significant. Was it clinically significant? Maybe, but not by much. There were no side effects from taking vitamin C, and I don't have a problem with docs recommending vitamin C, but I think we should be more realistic about efficacy. Because other than for scurvy, obviously, so far vitamin C doesn't seem to do much of a difference for anything that's clinically significant. One of the major contributions of the U.S. polyp study was the idea that if you remove a large polyp and you do so completely, you don't need to repeat colonoscopy in a year, which seems that used to be the norm back in the day. So now we do three years after initial polypectomy. One criticism of that study was that flat lesions were excluded from the analysis. So the Japan polyp study group decided to pick up this project looking if a single colonoscopy at three years is as good at doing one at one year and then three years after initial colonoscopy when you remove a big flat polyp. And they looked for follow-up findings of neoplastic lesions, including flat lesions. Here are the stats. Patients actually had two colonoscopies a year apart at baseline with all polyps removed 
before beginning the study. And then they were randomized to two exams, one at one year and one at three years, versus skipping one year exam. And it's about 700 patients in each group. The end result here is that there were no major differences between the two groups in terms of how many cancers or significant polyps were found, which is not surprising. I mean, you just had two colonoscopies. What the heck do you think you're going to find on a third one a year later? Not much. Doesn't matter if it's one year or three years away. Here's the caveat, though. Even after two-round baseline colonoscopy, cancers that were found mainly were composed of flat lesions, so-called non-polypoid colorectal neoplasms, or laterally spreading tumors. And these cancers were more frequently found in patients with flat lesions on baseline colonoscopies. Number of adenomas, the fact that they were flat on initial clearance colonoscopies, were highest risk factors for metachronous advanced neoplasia. Serrated lesions also played a role, but not as much. Also important to note here is that if you do a quality colonoscopy, the risk of having cancer or advanced polyp is low, but it's not zero. 13 patients total out of 2,000 ended up with invasive cancer found within three years of having not one, but two screening colonoscopies back-to-back. This is a very complex paper and with complex study algorithm and analysis, but it teaches us something. This is important for both endoscopists and patients to know. As good as we are, we are not eliminating the risk of cancer with colonoscopy. I mean, gosh, even doing two colonoscopies within one year span still doesn't get your risk to zero. And this is not lifetime risk we're talking about. It. This is risk within three years. Still a few people have had cancer. So you got to watch out for those flat polyps. Very interesting. Good news for patients with EOE who one day will be pregnant. Eosinophilic esophagitis seems to be the disease of the young, so it would be very interesting to know if and how pregnancy affects EOE symptoms. So there's a study. This was a symptom survey-based study, so keep that in mind. It was done in Switzerland. They had data on 34 pregnancies from 20 patients. Over half the patients reported improvement in dysphagia during pregnancy, and only 20% felt worse. Only three patients required endoscopy during pregnancy for dysphagia that gotten worse. Leading patient concern was related to heritability of eosinophilic esophagitis. In my clinic, I haven't gotten this question from parents yet, but I have seen patients whose children had EOE who ended up being diagnosed with EOE themselves. Overall, at least based on this tiny survey, eosinophilic esophagitis doesn't have any negative effects on pregnancy outcomes. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to cook gluten-free and his celiac disease may get better. Benjamin Libwall built quite a group down in New York City. This paper published by his group in CGH is a cooking-based intervention for celiac disease. Celiac disease is plagued with issues with adherence in the non-gluten-free world. And what happens after diagnosis, many patients switch to eating foods only with gluten-free labels on them. And that usually makes them feel worse, both physically and emotionally. And they may develop over-reliance on processed foods, as well as trouble eating out. So this was a pre- and post-design clinical trial pilot. They recruited patients with biopsy-confirmed celiac disease who didn't know how to cook. Then they had nutritionists design a course to teach them how to make home-cooked meals. And this was a small study. At one-month follow-up, they reported improvement in quality of life and felt that this was helpful. This is not something super complicated. You're not trying to treat the patient with some expensive amazumab or incredinib that cost a million dollars. Instead, you're giving them cooking lessons. 
I've changed my practice a few years back as how I approach celiac disease treatment. And not only do I ask patients to see a nutritionist, but I also encourage them to get a gluten-free cookbook from the library or buy it in the store. And from the very beginning, learn how to cook new meals, not just try to find substitutes for the old habits. Cooking for yourself is a skill that many folks are losing these days with things like DoorDash and Uber Eats. So we talked about appendicitis being treated with antibiotics. How about diverticulitis? Since many patients do undergo surgery for recurrent diverticulitis, this study was published in JAMA Surgery, and it was an open-label, randomized trial looking at patients with recurrent, complicated, or persistent painful diverticulitis in Finland, looking at sigmoid resection versus conservative treatment. So who felt better overall? 90 patients were included in this trial, by the way. So it seems that surgery was better. I'm not surprised here. I mean, there was no sham surgery arm, and it's hard to prove that surgery itself did the magic here. But you can't deny the number of patients who didn't get surgery and had recurrent diverticulitis. Almost a third of patients in conservative treatment arm had diverticulitis within six months, compared to 5% of patients with surgery. One thing to keep in mind is that their study population was relatively healthy. Less than half the patients even had hypertension. And no one had CHF. No one was morbidly obese with an average BMI of 28 to 29. And despite having some surgical complications, mostly grade 1 like dermatitis, patients still felt better with surgery. Also, the study was terminated early because there was such a clear difference between surgery and not doing surgery. So this is the surgeon's saving grace. You can still do surgery for diverticulitis if you can't do it for appendicitis, I guess. And this study shows that doing surgery for recurrent diverticulitis is a good indication for laparoscopic elective sigmoid resection. I have no problems with this. So that is all I have for you today. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. This is the first episode of the year 2021. And if you feel if I've missed any big papers in the year 2020, send them to me. I'll read them and consider including them in the next episode. Please remember that this is a completely independent podcast, so if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the newsletter on the website www.gipearls.com and leave a review on iTunes. That really helps a lot. Thanks again. Bye-bye.